you know, I ran from the church for so long. This would, would be the last place I would show up is the Thursday night with a bunch of Christian women. Because women are scary enough, but you had the Christian dynamic. And, and for so long, you know, I just played church. I just played the part because you grow up in East Texas. And listen, we've got a whole other thing going on the, the, of us. We live in the Bible Belt of the world. Sometimes I talk up north, and they don't get Bethmore Bible study. They've never had a women speaker come and do a conference ever. And um, it's really refreshing. But you do then realize how spoon-fed we've been in the South with Bible study and resources, and books, and things like that, and so it, it, I say that because it gets easy to go to church, which then turns into a religious experience where we lose the relationship factor of who Jesus Christ is to us, and this is what I did for the majority of my Christian life. I want to be clear up front that I was a born-again, saved girl going to heaven when I die, had a genuine salvation experience at the age of nine that I remember, that I, you know, formally remember being baptized and talking to my pastor. And, um, but I can't remember a time that I did not want to know the Lord. I really can't. Do, has anybody ever had that experience? Like, you just were born into the church nursery, and your grandmother just drug you to every Wednesday night, every Sunday night. You were at the church every time the doors opened, whether or not you wanted to be. And that was really my life. I had an extremely dysfunctional home life with my bi biological parents. A lot of fighting, level 10, no emotional language to speak of. Um, feelings were weakness. You know, get it together. And if you need to cry, go do it in your room with the door closed. And my parents fought a lot. And um, here's what I know. I know that they loved me to the extent that they knew what love was. I, I think that's true for all of us, especially as a counselor. I can tell you that we love to the extent that we have experienced love. And so a large part of my life, I just lived with emotionally numb people. But my grandmother, Juanita, <laughs> she came and got me every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night. And she spoke the truth. Sometimes it was hard to hear. She still doesn't like my tattoos, and she will let me know it. Every time she sees, she's 82, and I'm going to tell you, I've heard that for a number of years, how much she does not like my tattoos. So I wear sleeves like this when I go home to see her, and I'll sweat it out because, you know, she's got, the, she's got the heat on. She's got it on 82. It's 100 outside. And I'm wearing a sweater like this, and she doesn't say anything, but she knows, and she loves me still. And it is rocks of faithful women like that in my life that um, I have not forgotten and have brought me back to the truth of salvation and the gospel. Um, but I spent 20 years as a Christian, a Christian, not this girl who did not know the Lord. I just want to be really clear. Not this girl who did not know the Lord, did a bunch of rebellious stuff, had this crazy thing happen, came to know the Lord and said, oh, I'm better, or I'm on the right track. No, I loved Jesus. For as much as I knew at 5, 6, 7, 15, 16, 17, 25, 26, 27, for as much as I knew I loved Jesus, here's the problem, I was not sure that he loved me.
And that's, that's where we can get it mixed up in the church. And we can be saved and go into heaven when we die and be in absolute bondage. We as Christian women in the church, and I see it all the time. I see it whether I'm speaking to 30 women or 3,000 women in an arena. I see it whether I am speaking to a, an 83-year-old woman sitting across from me in, a, in an office space or whether I'm in the prison speaking to someone who's, you know, been through hell and back. I see it over and over that we can profess to know Jesus Christ and we can go through the motions and we can still be in absolute captivity inside. What in the world do we do about it? What in the world is going to bring us into authentic Christian living internally? Because as much as I love, Michelle, that you use that adjective to describe me, I'll take it all day long. I want to be real. I want to be authentic. I want to be the girl that you want to be friends with. I really do. But at the end of the day, I can, I can play that part. Because I am a sinner. And my flesh wants you to like me. And so I'm going to cater, typically, to that. Versus, okay, when is that real of me? When is that true? When internally, in my mind, in my heart, in my behaviors, am I really authentic? When do I get to the point as a Christian woman where it would be awesome for you to like me, but I don't need you to? I would love for you to love me, but I don't need you to. And this is the journey that, Christ, that Jesus has had me on. This girl who was in the church, raised in the church, had a wonderful, God-fearing grandmama. And for all that I knew in my broken little mind, really loved Jesus and really had good reason to question if he loved me back. And I want to give you some freedom there. Because, this is why I wrote the book, Nothing Wasted. I'm going to read a little bit in a minute, but when I say nothing wasted, I really mean nothing. <laughs> I really mean Romans 8. All things, all things for our good and his glory to those that love him. I'm going to read that in just a moment. But when I say nothing, I mean nothing. I mean no part of your life. The most vile thing that you can think about. The most rebellious thing that you can think about. The most shameful experience of your life. The ache that you receive. The rejection you receive. The betrayal you receive. The divorce. The adultery. The addiction. The most boring parts of our life. The seemingly insignificant things like folding the laundry and picking up our kids from school. And choosing to let husband go work while you stay home. When all you want to do is get out of this house. The lunchroom bullies, um, the mean girls, the job that just is mundane and everyday and mediocre, and you get up and you look in the mirror and you go, what am I doing with my life? Where is God in that? How is he using even that? And I will be 40 this year, and I'm telling you, I have never been more sure I have never been more certain in all of my life because of all of the women on this planet that do not, does not deserve his love. Of all of the women that can go to the front of the line of scandal and rebellion and the, the 
hours I have contemplated hopelessness, the hours I have contemplated ending it, the amount of prescription drugs I have popped to get by, the people that I have hurt all along the way, the friendships that I have wounded, the girls that I have gossiped about behind their back when I was the mean girl in the lunchroom. Of all the women that's going to go to the front of the line, that is the least likely candidate to be useful to a holy, sovereign, loving, just God, is me. And I'm never more sure that he loves me. And I'm never more sure that he loves you. And I'm never more certain in my whole life, which is why I'm willing to go first and put all of this down. Can't take it back. Woo! There's no take backs on books, man. It's on the Google. And, I mean, I will change a million times, you know, between this book and 10 years from now. I'm not the same girl that I was when my first book came out in 2012. I read that sometimes. I'm like, oh, my good grief. Some of my theology's not even sound. I'm like, what in the world? But that's okay because now let me tell you something. When you become free in here, when you become the real deal in here, you now have the freedom to fail. You now have the freedom to miss it. You now have this internal liberty that says, I am so trusting the Lord with this. And there is something about that freedom that now changes the game. It's no longer this religious experience where we just show up to church and do the thing. Now, now I want to. I don't have to, I want to, because the Lord has forgiven me and set me free. And it's freedom that begets obedience. It's not obedience that brings freedom. May we not forget this in the church. May we not miss this in the church. And if you've been hurt by the church, and I think we all have in some way, and and when I say church, I'm using that really broadly to say the corporate gathering of like-minded people. The corporate gathering of us on Sunday mornings where we're really just sitting in a pew and we really don't know. We know somebody's name. We know how many kids they have. We know when their birthday is, maybe. We know um, what their prayer request is in women's Bible study. But do we really know what's going on in their life? Do we really know what they're struggling with? And, um, you know, like I say, this is the last place I thought I'd be. And I want to just tell you in all hope that the one place where I felt the most hurt and most wounded is the one place where I feel like I've received so much healing. When I fully, fully accepted the grace of Jesus for myself and quit telling everybody else about it, but accepted it for me. Does that make sense? I mean, obviously, I still tell people about it. That's what I do. I love it. But I spent all my time telling you what you needed to be free. Telling you what you needed to do to get fixed. And until I sat in the crumbling of my own despair, of my own sin, until I felt the full weight of my ability to be a sinner. 
and all the ways that I distrust God every single moment of the day or I'm tempted to, until I felt that and leveled myself at the foot of the cross, I never had fully believed that grace was for me, that God's unconditional love was for me. Let me read this verse to you, Romans 8. Okay, now, I know that you've heard this before. It is an extremely highly preached verse, Romans 8. If you've been in the church at any time, you've heard it. But I, you, may, you can close your eyes if you want to, or you can just listen. I want you to just really listen with fresh ears. And I want you to really think and ponder in this moment, have I fully, do I believe God? I'm not asking if you believe in God. Different question. 90% of the world believes in a God. What makes you different? What makes you free? What, what, what is the thing that catapults you above offense? When someone talks about you behind your back, when you are rejected, when you don't get invited to the party, when mom hurts your feelings, when someone is sharp with their words or they give you that tone, what is the thing in you that gives you a breath the maturity in the spirit rises up above it. You see over the offense and you respond differently than you did two years ago, five years ago. What is that part of you? So I'm asking you, do you believe God? Because who you believe you are right now is who you believe God is. However you see yourself in this moment, I'm weak, I'm not enough, I'm ashamed, I'm not worth it. How I'm angry, I'm bitter, I'm fearful, I'm being punished. However you see yourself is exactly how you see God. So it's one thing to believe in him, it is quite another to believe him. To take him up on who he is. So I want you to hear this, this portion of Paul preaching to the Romans as though you are believing God for you. What then shall we say? And Paul's talking about all these things, uh, persecution mainly, pain, suffering. This is 831. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I'm going to stop. Who is the one giving, that's taking the credit for the... Okay, because here's... Let me preface that. I'm going to be really clear here because this is where I do not want theology to be missed. So often in my life, I want to look at my most reckless sin. I want to look at the most evil things, even if I did not cause it or if it wasn't caused to me. I want to look at the big picture evil suffering pain of the whole world. Human injustice, um, sex trafficking, hunger, poverty, homelessness. I want to look at the big, big evil things that we would all agree are evil and dark in this world. And there's this part of me, and I think for all of us, if we're honest, that wants to completely dismiss that there, God would have anything to do with any of this. We want to separate the dark from a sovereign God. So my question is, and what I want you to start to think deeply about, <laughs> I want you to start to think deeply about how can God be God? 
if not completely sovereign over all things. What in the world would God be doing with any of these pieces? What in the world? But see, you've got to deal and look at these deep, doctrine, heavy, weighty things that we don't want to talk about in the church. We don't want to talk about a God who in and of himself is not evil. Bible very clear about that. In and of himself does not cause evil or sin. And yet, the Bible also very clear, God is sovereign. God is eternal. God is the one who commands a storm or allows a storm or doesn't allow a storm that can wipe out an entire neighborhood. So I may be stepping on toes for a minute, but that's okay because I'm going to wrap back around and I want us to think because this is the work that I've had to do with the Lord to deal with me, my own heart. God couldn't be this far off thing that I categorize and put into boxes that makes me feel comfortable. He's either completely holy and completely sovereign and completely good in all of it, or he's not God. And I don't want to serve a God like that. If I don't think God is over all things and sees it all in the eternal perspective, that he's got a reason and a purpose eternally, why would I worship that God? It doesn't make sense. So I just, I, and then I'm going to ask you if, just don't answer out loud. What is the greatest sin? What's the most evil thing that's ever happened? You may or may not say this. You could think of horrific things like the Holocaust, child, uh, child abuse, your own abuse perhaps. You know, but as I read the Bible and as I think about humanity, I think the most horrific thing that ever happened was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And all of the evil men that had to do with that. And I just, I look at this over and over, this Romans 8, that we love this passage because it gives us so much freedom and hope. Now take a deep breath. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If he's going to do that for us, you telling me he's not going to use your worst thing? If he did not, if Jesus did not, if God did not abandon us on that day, if Jesus did not abandon us on the day that hell rained down on his shoulders, you think he's going to abandon you ever? In your greatest loss, in your greatest shame, in your greatest sin, in your greatest pain. He who did not spare his only son for you, for me. Do you think he's going to leave you? Oh man, listen to the rest. It gets so good. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Justifies means made right. Made right before God. It's a present tense uh, condition. It's where you are. It's the position. It's the posture. It's never changing. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is. Can I say that again? Who is. 
Thank you. I live on that is. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. That is good news. Because y'all, I don't know what to talk. I don't know what to say. There, there, there reaches a point where I am at the end of myself. And I don't know what else. Sometimes I'm so frustrated and I'm so angry and I am so, I feel so hopeless and lost about things. I really hope that Jesus is interceding for me right now. I really hope and pray and believe that he knows me, that he knows the secret heart, that he knows the sacred parts of me that I don't even know. And he is coming before my God, eternal God, my Father, my Creator, who I am eternally wired to want. Did you know that? Every single human cannot go a single day without wanting to be known by God. Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is written into our heart. That means that we are always searching for paradise lost. That means that we are getting up every single day and we need God to be God because we are built and born and the DNA code in us is to live forever. We remember Eden. We remember. We remember paradise. We remember perfection. There's a part of us in our blood that knows that one day we will be there. And so the hope and the peace and the joy is found when we finally live like that. Yeah, that's the way I want to live. That's the way I want to live, but I need a holy inner, um, intercession by my Redeemer, who I trust in, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. Okay, did we not just cover the gamut of every evil, painful, suffering thing, external and internal, that could happen? You could be homeless and dying of illness on the street, and the Lord has not abandoned you. So why do we think he's abandoned abandon us? Why do we doubt him when our friends rejects us or when that church doesn't work out like we thought or when we even suffer painful loss of, of humans, of relationships in our life? We want to doubt him. But he's saying, who? What? Give me one thing that would cause me to walk away from you or to leave you. And here's why. Verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All right, do you notice how it's been in the present tense? He is all of these things. Now what? Loved. Past tense, because he's already done the work. Now this <laughs> is written pretty, not long after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so readers are still, they st Christianity is a new thing. They're still learning about Jesus. And here's Paul saying, he loved you. You know what that means for us? That means that he has loved us from before the foundations of the world. We were born to be loved by him. He chose us. He brought us in. He finished the work. And when I know that I lived in the finished work of God, I get to be free of trying to fix 
So I want you to always be thinking of those two counter words, fix and finished. It really helps me in my marriage. <laughs> it really helps me in my parenting. It really helps me with my girlfriends. Um, because if I, anytime you press on any of my junk and my insecurities and stuff, I immediately, especially as a counselor, I want to fix you. I want to fix me. But if I am living and resting secure in the already done work of Jesus, all of that fixing goes out the window. And we really can just love each other. We really can just let everybody off of our hook for the love. Let's let everybody off the hook. You know what I mean? I can't tell you how many women and, and men I, I work with that they just want me to give them the answer. They just want an answer of how to fix their son or how to fix their mom or how to fix their coworker. And what do I say and what do I do? And it just drives them nuts when I say, leave them alone. Quit telling them what they need to do. No wonder they're running away from you. No wonder they're rebelling. When you believe that you are finished work in me, you will naturally want to obey me. But if for one second you doubt it, then that's when we're going to rebel. That's when we're going to do what we want to do. That's when we're going to choose what, we, what makes us happy over what is sacrificial. Ultimately, that, that's the rub right there. You see what I'm saying? So, but if we can just quit fixing everybody, quit fixing ourselves, the work will be done. He can do it. He really can. I am sure, verse 38, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Part of my story is that I've been to the depths. And when I say the depth, I think, um, I think most all of us have been to a depth. Um, I think most all of us to the point that we know have been to a part of our life where we just God's got to be who he says he is or we are dead. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? You know that, that feeling of, God, you have got to be who you say you are. Or, I'm going to walk away. This isn't going to work out. I'm a dead woman walking. And the reason that I wrote this book is because I'm tired of no one talking about it. <laughs> I'm tired of no one talking about depression. Anxiety, fear, shame, pornography, food addiction, sleeplessness, shopping addiction, betrayal. I'm just, I want us to talk about, I mean, the Bible talks all about it, but we come to church and we pretty ourselves up and we stop talking about the hard things. And I'm weary. And, and what I can tell you as, a, as someone who loves also the Bible but loves to study the brain is that, you know, not for one second can you separate yourself from any person or experience in your past. Not for one second. And so what I've noticed, especially a trend over the past 10 years of where I've watched, you know, social media back in, 
when I first started even writing or anything, it was blogging, which is like dinosaur age now. Nobody blogs. But, I mean, you literally had your name.com, blogspot.com, slash, 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 and then somebody had to find you in that world of, you know, all of that. And it was, you would sit there and you would type and you'd try to, you know, you'd work for two weeks on getting a little image popped in there, you know, and spacing it all correctly. And I did that for years before now, I mean, it's just shoot, 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 scroll, scroll, scroll. You've got to have the latest. The fl- I mean, you literally, for one second, I mean, I think we're looking at a, if it's not catching our attention in a second, we're on to the next thing. So different world we live in, but what I have noticed a trend is, is this statement that I do understand where we're coming from. I do understand that it feels good for us to say, but it's something like this. Our past does not define us. Why are you looking back when you're going forward? You're no longer there. You are this. Um, Something of that effect. I think I even have a a sketch in my office of of those words. And something in my spirit over the past few years has just not settled on that because, one, I'm a psychologist, so I'm going, well, that doesn't even make good sense, really. From From a physiological standpoint, it's impossible. Your brain is storing data and intent, you are built to remember. You are, you are built, according to Acts 17, 27, you are actually, by God, set into the neighborhood, the point in history, the biological parents or adoptive parents, your friends, your workplace. You are set before he ever did anything. He set you exactly where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be, with who you're supposed to be. Okay, so if I know that's biblical truth, then now I can't fight against it all the time. There's a part of me that has to release, no matter how dysfunctional it was or how broken it was, there's a part of me that has to start to try. At some point in my life, I hate that I had to be 30 before this started to work, but I fought against it till I was 30. But at some point for us to grow up, to grow up in our faith, we have to go, okay, God, what if I trust you over my parents? What if I trust you over the lack of affection? What if I trust you determined my point in time and the people that I would be raised by? Woo! But if you have any significant trauma, if you doubt that over the course of your life, so for me, I'm, I'm struggling with rejection. I'm struggling with insecurity. I'm wondering if I could ever be wanted or truly loved. And, but I'm going to church. So all I know at 15 is that that's where all the pretty people are, and that's where all the people are that seem to have it together, and maybe if I just keep going to church, I'll finally get it together. So I, at 15, went to a True Love Waits conference, which was a big deal back in that day uh, of the 90s. It was this huge conference thing. Does anybody remember that? Do you remember the True Love Waits conference? So the whole point is, yes, that they, you put on a ring or you sign a contract or something stupid like that. It's, and you say you're going to keep yourself pure until marriage. So you're not going to have sex until you're married. Um, good. Yes, good. What the Lord wants. Yes. And I explain all that to you. Um, but in my case, I think my youth pastor must have had a... Um, extra in his budget that year or something, but he brought in this boy band, and they were fine. (laughs) And they stood across the stage, and there was smoke, and they were playing their guitars, and they, you know, 
had their hair. At that time, it wasn't tattoos. If you were a rebel, if you were a Christian rebel, you had an earring if you were a guy. So they didn't have just one earring. They had like two, you know, so they were like, so here we are, 15 years old, and we're supposed to go down front and get our ring and say, we don't want to have sex with you until we're married. Sorry. I mean, it's so ironic, you know. So the whole thing, regardless, I meant it. I meant it. I rushed down front. I signed the thing. I put on my ring, and I meant this promise to God because I, all I knew, here's the message I was testing out as a teenager. All I knew was that love must be earned. In my house, love must be earned. And from what I could see at church, it was the same message what you do, and even this ring. So you're telling me if I wear this ring? So you're telling me if I sign this paper? You're telling me if I make this commitment that God's going to have favor on me? That I'm going to be more loved by God? Well, of course, what 15-year-old person's not going to take that offer? So we do it. I go down there. I, I proudly wear it to school. I'm like, look, boys, don't even look over here. Got a ring on it. And... Here's what I want you to know from this story. I want you to know this was an absolute turning point of my life. This is where literally all hell would break loose. Um, but I want you to remember what was the precursor to this, this place of where I am with God. How do I view God? I, I view him as something his love must be earned. So three months after that conference, almost to the day, I was brutally molested and raped by an older man. It was a horrific experience. It was trauma in every sense of the word. Um, that is not the, the main part of the story that I want you to remember. I want you to know that no matter what you've been through, when you have an experience or relationship in your life where everything changes like this, and God is no longer who you thought he was. It is a trauma. And that could be your parents get divorced. That can be you go from rich to poor or poor to rich. That can be the mean girls in the lunch room. Whenever you have a significant thing like this happen in your life, you have experienced a trauma. A trauma is just this. It's really actually more broad than people make it. It is anything in your life that tells you things can no longer continue the same way. A trauma is when a re an experience overwhelms your reality. It overwhelms your reality to the point where you cannot continue to go on the way that you have been going on without something significantly changing. And for me, that was this moment of sexual assault and abuse. It would be for anyone. But the big trauma was what it did for my relationship with God. Because now I'm thinking, okay, God, I meant what I said to you. I meant my promise. I really did, but you did not keep yours. That's what I'm thinking. And I would go the next seven years just showing him, like, if, if that's what your love means... God, if that's what you're going to do to my promise, if that's who you are, then watch who I will be. 
And the truth of the matter is, if you knew me during that time of high school, early college years, you would not have known this was me. The girl that you saw in the day was, was really in a town like Nacogdoches, small, I mean, small town like Marshall. I mean, you, everybody knows everybody. You're somebody's, everybody's cousin. And that's a beautiful thing and the worst part of it <laughs> is that people immediately think they know everything about you. But I would say for the most part that I was um, involved I think I was respected. I was on uh, church staff, uh, church leadership at my church. I was leading Bible study. I was singing on the praise team. I made good grades. I was active in the day. And in the dark, literally darkness of my heart and mind, but also the dark, I was just rebellious. Anything you want to think. I was, I was trying out. I was testing drugs, alcohol, partying, sex. Just trying so hard to put a band-aid on this place in me and, and fix it and fix it. And maybe if I just do, and this girl in the day, eventually I will become the person I want to be. But here's what I'm doing. I am nursing and I am rehearsing a lie. A lie that I am not wanted. And over time, even as a Christian, the more resources and energy and time we give to that lie, the more we fall in love with it. Think about the things that you put time and effort into. The more time you spend on that project, the more time you spend on making that look good and lovely and nice, you love it. You love it. And this was my life. I fell in love with the lie that I was not wanted, and so I learned good female techniques to keep that lie close, to uh, keep it from exploding everywhere and affecting everyone, although it really was, um, and, and things like manipulation, keeping myself busy. I became a master of chaos. Because if I could keep myself so busy and so much chaos around me, then I would never look at the thing and maybe you would never look at the thing. And a part of my story and a part of the story that I share in the book is, is being this young, newly married woman with a baby. Um, and I'll tell you, we were young and we had dangerous young money. We had really nice things. And I would look around at my life and people would look at my life and think, man, got it together. And I have this husband who loves me. Truly, Justin loves me. And he looked real good in a pair of Wranglers. And he came from good parents. He came from this good Christian Baptist upbringing. And I thought, man, if he's the guy that I thought I would never get. And I got him. I got him, and I yet I'm holding on to this thing. I, I've told him some. I've not told him all. And you know where I would find myself at the bottom? I would find myself at the bottom, at the depth, sitting in my closet, tucked under our clothes, sobbing and rocking back and forth as a grown woman, as a mother, as a wife, 
with a job, with friends, at church, in leadership, with money. What else do you need? And every single night, about 2 a.m., when the house was quiet, I would find myself crawling and tucking into our closet and rocking back and forth and popping some other pill to go to sleep. And I was 25 years old, but 15-year-old Casey. 25 years old and still 15 in my mind because you know where I would go at 5, at 10, at 15 when my parents were fighting or when things got bad or when some guy broke my heart or when I needed to cut my arm just one more time to feel power over my situation. I would go in my closet and I would tuck myself back into the corner. And that's where I would just love my lie. And so... The times that I have been asked, Casey, why in the world would you cheat on your husband? My answer is really clear and really specific because I loved my lie more. That's why I cheated on my husband. So something in my life and in your life has to traumatize us to rupture this thing that we think we love and that we've nursed and we've given so much time to, whatever it is. And, and it is painful to look back at our past and our parents and the things that have hurt us and the people that have wounded us and the losses we've experienced us and all of these sinful behavior patterns that we put in place to cope and survive. It's painful. But it's the only thing that is going to bring us to our knees and set us free. So at the end of this three-year adulterous relationship in the church with my best friend's husband, I, okay, let me just stop there because here's what I don't want you to walk away with. When I talk about this experience, this is not for show. This is not for a book. This is not for you to be on a hook or captivated. This is to prove what God is able to do, what he wants to do, not just in my life, but in yours. And the pivotal moment of freedom for me was at the end of this affair and everything you want to think happened. It was horrible. It was absolute fallout. I couldn't even bring myself to confess. I bet I was dying from the inside out, literally, because as, as Christians, we cannot sin successfully. We may go three years, five years, ten years in this habitual pattern of sin, but it will not be successful. God will bring us to the end of it. And that's the beauty of the way that he works. And that's why I want us to look at each other differently. So if you've got somebody who's dealing with drug addiction or you've got somebody who's in adultery or dealing, uh, going through whatever the sin is in their life and it's obvious and it's habitual and it's constant, have mercy on them because the Lord is sifting the life out of them if they are a believer. If they don't know the Lord, they're fine. They're just going rock and roll and they love the feeling. But if they know the Lord, he is dealing with them. He is dealing with them. That's the way he works with us. So you can let them off your judgment hook because they will come to their knees. And you can love them into that. You can bear their burden with them. 
You can step into this messy, yucky stuff like adultery. You know, the one thing that I wish, looking back, is that one, one church leader would have stepped into our life. Just one. Because everybody knew what was going on. I mean, I'm not kidding. It, it was obvious. And no one said anything. And I wish that one person would have stepped in, but actually bared the burden. You know what I mean? Not like stepped in and told me what I need to do to fix it and step back out. No, we are called to bear. That means that somebody with a perfectly good, clean reputation is called to walk in, pick up my adultery, put it on themselves in order to help me bear myself out of it. And that's what you and I are called to do for each other. Ruin our reputation for somebody else. But God did bring me to my knees. I did not sin successfully. And the lie was exposed. And he surfaced it. And my husband and I will tell you, we don't want any of it. We don't want to take back any of it because we would never know the depth of the love of Jesus Christ for us. We would never know what he is capable of doing in our life. We would never have the intimacy and the love for one another that we do had he not completely wrecked us. I mean, we lost it, y'all. We lost our friends. We lost our church. We lost our reputation. We lost our jobs. We lost our home. We lost it. We moved. We had to move. But my husband stood there when he could have walked away, when I fully expected him to walk away because every single man had always walked away from me. When I was already crafting my manipulation, when I was already crafting my chaos storm to come in and how I was going to, you know, fix this thing again, and my man stood there and said to me, Casey, I am so hurt. I cannot believe. But I don't know how to not love you. I don't know how to not love you. I'm telling you, it wasn't three days and Justin went to the other man's house and knocked on his door. And he said, look, I want to be really clear about something. Don't you ever contact my wife again. But I forgive you. If I have forgiven her, I forgive you and I release you. And I will not talk about you. And I will not run your name through the mud. And I want you to go love your wife. And I want you to go love your kids. Here's what this moment did for me. It was the epitome of what Jesus does for all of us every single day. When we come to him with brokenness, when we are empty-handed, when we have nothing to offer him, when we have prostituted ourselves out to a million different idols like this cell phone in our pocket all day long, given ourselves over to lesser loves, 
And he looks at us in the eyeballs and he says to us, I don't know how to not love you. For me to not love you would be to turn on my own self. And I was made, created, born a part of divinity and eternity that is not only forever but also tied deeply to you. I was born to love you. And I'm not just going to love you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to finish it. You are going to stand uncompromised in me no matter what you do. So on your worst day, I'm going to love you. When you spit in my face, I'm going to love you. When you choose everything else but me, I'm not just going to love you. I'm going to come knock on your door. I'm going to come knock on your door in Revelation 3, one of my favorite passages where God says, if I stand at the door and knock, if you will just open it, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. God says this. I can't get over it. I can't get over it. He's going to stand at my back door and knock and all he wants is to watch me eat and be my friend and not fix me. Oh yeah, I can serve that God. I can serve the God who loves me unconditionally. And then that sets me free to love every other person in my life that way. Now I can let everyone else off my hook of expectation or need. And you can fail me. Because I rest in the flow of God's love. He is all I need. I am completely satisfied. And so now I can give all my reserves to you because I'm totally full. I'm not halfway full. I'm completely overflowing, satisfied, and full. Nothing will separate me from his love. No one will come between me and him. And not because of me, not because of my church, not because of my, you know, Bible study patterns, not because of my prayer, not because of my good behavior, not because of my purity ring. Because he comes after me. And I'm going to tell you, sisters, when we can get this, when we can believe that this is who God is for us, that is freedom. That is what I want for us in the church. That is how I want us to love one another. And I will waste every breath until the day that I die telling women that this is for us, this. But listen, in the years after the affair, nothing just changed overnight. I had serious <laughs> issues that needed to be dealt with. But let me tell you, I did a lot of great things. I went to church, I got friends, I stayed the course. I, I went to a therapist. Even though I was a therapist, we typically become therapists because we need therapy. <laughs> and I did all those things, and they're great. Do those things, all right? Invest in that care. But the only thing that changed those beliefs that were so deeply wired in me, so something had to be greater. So we have this part of our brain. Here I go again, sorry. We have the part of our brain called the amygdala that fires when we feel a threat. So if you've had a threat in your life, that then something is triggered. You've heard this before. There's triggers. 
and, and suddenly you feel threatened, like the love that you, is compromised. Like there's an expectation or, I don't know, you can think to yourself what that might be for you. But those things are very ingrained in us. We have patterns and networks that are built and wired of how we love and how we run away from love. And something greater than ourselves and greater than other people has to come in and rupture that. So as much as I love my therapist, as much as a self-help book or a Bible study is helpful, it's not greater than me. It's not greater than a human thing. It's still a subjective experience. It's a one-dimensional thing. You're a story, you're a story, you're a story. And we all really only know what we know. And knowledge is one thing, and I can know a lot about the Bible. I can know a lot about God. I can know a lot about myself and do tons of self-reflection. But until I have understanding, and understanding and wisdom can only come from something greater than us, something that is living and breathing and active and sharper than a double-edged sword that goes down into our joints and our marrow, into the places of our heart that we don't even see yet. So if, if there is a part of you right now and you are struggling with doubt, if you are struggling with fear, if you're struggling with shame, if, um, if you're wondering what is God's call for you, what is God's purpose and meaning for all the things that have happened to you, and I don't mean just these crazy, I have a very crazy story. That's the story that I have. But I meet people all the time that are like, my husband being one of them, Casey, I don't have a story. Like, I, Justin will literally say, I cannot think of one trauma in my whole life. I have never gone a day without thinking that I was loved and wanted. And so, you know, this book, I'm so glad I married that guy because he helped me write this. And so I wrote tools and resources and the movement of God's word and how we sort through. And we're, I talk about attachment. I talk about trauma. I talk about just being boring, <laughs> just being regular. Now God's using that too. No part of our life is wasted. I was going to read that, but I'm out of time. Um, I'm sick of it anyway. Uh, I, I just, here's where I want to wrap up, okay? You've given me so much gracious time and I thank you. I want to just leave you with this. Please read your Bible. If you do nothing else, do not think that one habit or one thought life or um, one reoccurring lie is going to change without the truth of God's Word. Daily. Daily. I'm not saying read a commentary. I mean, read a devotional every now and then. I'm, I think devotionals are great. Those little daily hits, you know, that... but but. How far is that going to take us? Five minutes? Because if you are a true born-again Christian, you are in the fight of your life. You, will, you should feel darts at you all the time. The enemy is prowling like a lion, waiting to take you out. And you're going to go by on a devotional of two sentences of encouragement? You better get in your word. You better study the Word of God. You better get past knowledge and start to gain understanding of the heart of your Father and His eternal plan for your whole life. Because not one thing, not one thing has been missed. Every single thing that you have done, will do, have not done that you should have, all of it 
It matters forever. We will stand before God with all of it. And what we did, what we didn't do, I want to encourage you that there is freedom. There is freedom here. There is truth here. There is change here. There is um, all of our, I don't know how to not love you, moment. And, man, I just want it for so much. I want us to love better. We need it. This world is dark and broken. And people are hurting. And we need to love better Christians.